Georgia Business Radio. I'm your host, Bo Henderson, here with Dr. Bill Lampton. And this is the program, this is the studio, this is the show that is committed to highlighting our local businesses and the people in the community who run them. So, Bill, welcome to the show again. we got some great guests. I'm excited to, with some of the conversations we'll have today. Yes, we do. Very interesting, very diverse. And so it's time to get on with the show. Well, so first, right here, we're the Business Incubator, coming to you from the Business Incubator from Brunel University, and I have another business that's located here with us, kind of a neighbor, so to speak. It's Progenix Laboratories, okay, and Brett Grouse, uh, CEO and founder of Progenix. So, Brett, tell us a little bit, kind of the 10,000-foot view of Progenix and what you're doing and what it's all about. Thanks, Bo, and uh, it's great to be here, part of the business incubator. I walk by the studio every day and say, where is everybody? So it's good to finally be in here. Uh, Progenics was founded in 2014, really as a market research company looking into the viability of pharmacogenetic testing within the healthcare marketplace. Um, Robbie Rupert is the CEO and founder. Unfortunately, he could not be here today. Um, but uh, Robbie founded the company back then really as a, uh, a research organization looking into this type of testing to see if it could be a standard of care within healthcare. Fast forward uh, five years later, we're still in the business. Um, Progenix has expanded uh, to Progenix Laboratories Incorporated. Uh, I'm the president and CEO of that organization. And what we do is provide a very low cost uh, test, pharmacogenetic test, something that, that, that currently is priced anywhere between $2,000 and, and uh, $3,000 for some Medicaid organizations. Um, seven to, to $1,300 uh, is, is what some labs are charging Medicare. And we said that's too much. This is never going to be a standard of care unless we can get the cost of the test down. Uh, so being here in the business incubator has allowed us to um, to, to have a very low-cost uh, infrastructure and develop a test that's $199 to the consumer. Uh, and, and in larger volumes, we can even probably do better than uh, $199. We're, we're not a cash laboratory. We are a, uh, I'm sorry, we're not a, uh, an insurance billing laboratory. We're actually a cash laboratory uh, because we, we are staying uh, away from some of the Medicare, Medicaid restrictions on, on uh, care. Pharmacogenetic testing at the 10,000-foot level is really, uh, we run a panel of 120 different uh, genetic alleles that we test for. Uh, we do it by a simple buckle swab of your cheek, and then we can look at uh, what, uh, what comes back from our, uh, from our laboratory. We can match that against the medications that the patient is currently taking and we can come up with a risk profile for that patient. Um, so if you had a, uh, uh, let's say, a, um, a statin that you were taking uh, or a blood pressure medication um, or an antidepressant, we can test your genetic makeup uh, and, and see that uh, the dose is correct, that the drug is correct, or if the drug is, is potentially harmful, creating an adverse drug event, we can... Uh, suggest alternatives. That's kind of the 10-foot level view of our business. Uh, we, are, we are not really like a 23andMe uh, genetic company, which we consider more of a novelty. This is a clinical-grade pharmacogenetics company that deals with uh, medication risk management in large populations of people. We're currently monitoring 32,000 patients 
in well over 300 facilities nationwide. Well, well, Brent, I, I saw this. My first career was actually, I was going to be a psychologist, and I was interning and doing some mental health work, and I ran into some of the intern scenarios to where you had people taking so many medicines, and then they took medicines to counteract those medicines, and that, so you didn't even know what was working and what was counteracting, so I love this work that it might even say, hey, here's what's going on actually within you, and maybe we can come up with a plan that actually works instead of just more medication. That's a, exactly right. We call that polypharmacy, and... Uh, you're exactly right with, uh, you know, people have multiple physicians. Those physicians have their, their modes of care, and often they don't look, uh, well, very often and frequently, they don't consider the personalized genetic component of prescribing. And uh, uh, those physicians who have adopted this technology uh, and utilize this method of prescribing, one of the guys locally uh, in here in Dawsonville is Dr. Keaton Family Practice, uses it almost 100% of his patients, and they use this to, uh, to really get personalized prescribing down uh, so we get rid of the trial and error uh, uh, prescribing in the adverse drug events. You know, 30 days after you're prescribed a drug, your physician will ask you, well, how are you doing? Um, we can get much more uh, through our data and through our, our information systems. We can get much more granular on, on dosing and on proper prescribing of drugs. Brittany, you mentioned 32,000 patients. How do they find you or how do you find them? That's a, a uh, massive number. Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. We, we don't uh, necessarily market direct to the consumer. We are starting to dab in that a little bit. Brianna, who is uh, my assistant, is here with us today, um, and, and she's helping me with the direct-to-consumer marketing. Uh, but we really focus on large vertical channels. Our biggest right now is a company called Pharmerica. They're the second largest provider of pharmacy care services in the nation. Uh, and Pharmerica services about 2,000 long-term care facilities. These could be nursing homes, uh, home health care, sniff units, step-down units from hospitals, et cetera. And they provide the pharmacy, uh, the pharmacist consult, and the drugs to all these patients. So they're the perfect partner uh, to deal with uh, the reduction in polypharmacy, Bo, as we talked about, to reduce adverse drug events in a very critical population of our, of our seniors, um, and to lower the cost of medications. We see, on average, uh, that, uh, that pharmacogenetic testing uh, can save anywhere, depending on the diagnosis, if it's a, if it's a psych or behavioral drug, it could be up to $5,000 per year per patient saved through this testing. So that's real money. And Bill, did you see the note when we came in um, that Brett provided for us, the number one provider in the long-term care marketplace? And we're just a startup. We're just a little startup. Uh, coming out of the incubator. Six, seven people. Well, the laboratory's coming out of the incubator, but the, the Progenics as a corporation has been around since, since 2014. And we built the lab, like I said, so that we could provide this test cheaply and we could control the panel and what was tested and make sure it's a true clinical grade test. I think the economy that you help patients with is marvelous. In addition to that, I'm very impressed with the fact that you help people, lay people who know very little about pharmaceutical industry, drugs, can't even pronounce the names of them, and you're really sort of the translator. You, you let them know what it is, what it's for, and whether they have the right amount. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. We, um, 
we do have a strong recommendation uh, on everything we do that uh, all the work that we provide uh, is, is to be discussed with your physician. Uh, physicians make the prescribing decisions. Um, this provides information, actionable information for the physician and pri uh, prescribing information. We, uh, we really counsel patients not to self, this is not a tool to self-diagnose or to self-treat. Uh, but, but I'll give an example. We had a lady, um, as we had an article in the Gainesville Times on our company, and uh, it was a great article. Was, I think it was in March of, of this year. And uh, a lady called us um, out of the blue. She, I saw the article, and I need to talk to you guys. And she came in with a walker, and, and uh, she handed us a four-page list of medications that she's on. She said, could you please test me? I'm on all this stuff. She felt horrible. I think she was about 68 years old. Um, and we tested that patient and provided those results to her physicians, uh, multiple physicians, and they were able to uh, greatly curtail her drug regimen and got that down from a number of about 46 medications to under 20. Well, that number of medications doesn't surprise me because one of my daughters is a pharmacist. And talking with her recently about the number of medications that are in my own house, she said, yours are fairly minimal, that there are many people who are on multiple drugs. And they do need help to understand and to know they're taking the right drugs. The nice thing about pharmacogenetics uh, and, and the system that we have produced with RX Gene Alert, which is our our trade name for our data portal, and My Best Med, which are, is our trade name for the panel that we produce. Uh, this is dynamic living data. Your genetics never change, but the body of knowledge around pharmacogenetics is constantly changing. There's being new pathways discovered uh, and, and novel ways of, of, of utilizing this technology. So it's, um, we're really excited about the future of this, of this business. A question I had, Brett, is I know we're talking a lot about specifically um, the pharmacogenic. Did I say that right? Yep, pharmacogenetics. Hey, getting the pharmacogenetics. But is there any application to, to doing tests to where it's almost proactive, to where you're seeing, hey, what drugs might interact well with this person, or is that a little bit different kind of science? Uh, we really the, – the, what the pharmacogenetic test really – shows is the way that your body metabolizes medications, okay. uh, deals with uh, the, the enzymes that are produced in the liver, the, and, and really the pathways that your body uh, ingests the medication, um, utilizes it, and then uh, excretes it. So um, I don't think we're going there yet, uh, right. perhaps someday. What we are doing is... Uh, that, that I think will be really interesting to the audience and you guys uh, is an opioid study. And with all of the, everybody in this, I'm sure everybody in this room has been touched somehow by a personal experience of somebody who's had a fentanyl overdose or a family member or a friend. I know uh, two kids that I coached uh, youth football in Alpharetta, uh, really, really great kids, both, um, you know, one, had his wisdom teeth removed, went home with a bottle of pills, and he was addicted instantly. And you know, six years later, he dies of fentanyl overdose. Um, it's just a very, very sad story. Yeah, and that story has been repeated so many times. So many times. Um, and there was a study done two years ago at Penn State, uh, but it was a small patient population. It was 37 patients, and they, uh, they analyzed a very narrow gene panel um, of the alleles that, that, that affect the, uh, the opioid cascade, how, um, 
morphine is is uh, utilized up in the body. Anyways, it was a it was a very good study uh, with with some very sound, if the numbers were correct, conclusive results that said, hey, these these genes, these sixteen genes, can do a very good job of predicting a person's propensity for addiction to opioid. Addiction is the disease. Dependency happens regardless, uh, but addiction is a chemical disease within the brain. Uh, and and if a physician can discover this early, this kind of goes to your your earlier question, Bo. If we can if we can discover if 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 if, a, if you, Bo, are more susceptible to addiction uh, than you, Bill, your prescribing would be different on opioids. You would go home with a two day supply, and you wouldn't get anything else. Whereas, Bill, you know, you may be able to to take it out a little farther because um, uh, your risk is much lower. So we've entailed, or we, we've, we've gotten together a group of scientists, Nicoletta Serban down at Georgia Tech. She's a healthcare analytics professor. Um, uh, we've got Dr. Lynn Webster, who is a nationally renowned uh, pain doctor uh, on our team. Uh, Dr. Yoshi from uh, from Translational Systems, who's now in Seattle Cancer Center. He's a, an analytics guru. And what we're going to do is repeat that 37-patient study in 1,000 and see if it really works. Wow. We've been talking with industry. We've been talking with local folks uh, to fund this thing privately. Um, we want to fund half of it privately and half through industry. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we want to do is have a deliverable product that's a tool that any physician or any healthcare organization can use to test a patient quickly, uh, test for their propensity to addiction. I would see it would be standard of care for any preoperative treatment uh, or any test that a, a patient would do prior to a surgery or something that would deal with painful uh, recoveries afterwards. Are you the only company doing what you're doing? Uh, no, there's there's a lot of lab companies, and uh, the first thing that we say is that we're not a lab company. We are a risk, uh, we're a medication risk management company in large populations. We utilize a lab to provide this genetic test, and that's why we've, you know, we've got the price as low as, as we can possibly go on this thing at, you know, at $199. Um, the other folks that are doing this are, are typically lab companies, and they will produce a 15-page report to hand you. And you know what your doctor does when you show up in his office and you hand him that 15-page report? He throws it, it right in the, the trash. trash. <laughs> he says, you know, it's just they don't understand the data. They're not bought into the whole concept of pharmacogenetics. They don't understand it. And it's not the way that they were trained. So it's going to take time for this to evolve. And it's not going to evolve with a 15-page test report. Uh, it's going to evolve with a real, real-time data portal, which we've created a real-time data portal uh, that they can log into and very quickly get actionable results uh, on their patients. If there's a drug-gene interaction, it'll be you know, blinking red uh, for the doctor as an alert. Uh, they can look up uh, alternate dosing. They can look up alternate medications on the site. Uh, and that's really where we're going with this business is, is creating a clinical decision support tool. It's a tool. It's, it's a, tool a tool for the doctors. I like that. Yes, now, sir. I always like to listen and look for philosophies when we're talking to business owners. Uh, and something you said, um, we like to fail often and fail fast. Let's talk. Tell me about that a little bit. Well, um, you know, we're, a, we're we consider ourselves a bootstrap organization. Um, yeah, I come from an industry, uh, uh, healthcare, but 
technology healthcare. I've been in the device industry. I've been in uh, uh, the uh, pharmacy hardware uh, companies. I've worked 12 years with a company called Amerisource Bergen, which was a pharmacy wholesaler. So I've, I've spent a lot of time um, around the healthcare environment and um, you can spend a ton of money developing a product and developing a company. And my first company, um, MedCenterDirect.com, back in 1999, uh, we had a partnership with, with HealthSouth. We raised about $40 million at that company. And that company eventually dissolved because it didn't make it. Um, the dot-com bonanza and right. bust was, was part of that reason. It was a pretty good company. Had a lot of support from HealthSouth. Um, but regardless of that, you know, we're a bootstrap organization. I think we've raised probably less than $2 million in total capital between the two companies over the last uh, two, three years. And um, we're not going to waste our investors' money. And we're not going to raise money that uh, dilutes our capital in the company, our, our equity in the companies. So we'd like to fail early, we like to fail fast, spend a, the least amount of money. If it's not going to work, we move on, and, and um, we don't overthink things. No, I like that. It reminds me of the, the Thomas Edison story. Let's, let's eliminate all the things that don't work to get to what really does. Yep. Well, thanks so much for the work you're doing, because I, I see that the end consumer not only helped them physically, but even financially, too. If somebody's out there listening, we're at, and they're saying, hey, I want to I kind of keep up with what Progenix is doing. Is there a way to maybe follow along with where you are? Or just We can maybe give updates here, whatever you think. But let us know, is there a way to just – I think some people are really interested in this work you're doing. Absolutely, and that's why I brought Brianna with me today. So introducing Brianna, what do you say to that? Hi. Hey. Um, <laughs> we have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, and, of course, our website, progenix.com. So you can follow us and reach out to us on any of those. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us at support at progenix.com. Very good. And any big announcements, of course, we'll, we'll have you come on, Brett, and let us know here on Business Radio X. Okay. Well, well thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. Bill, let's get right to our next guest and I'm excited about this. You, you brought up a little bit in the, the pre, pre-show pre uh, some topics that I'm, I'm curious to get to. So. Yes, delighted to welcome Terry Merck, the vice president of American Yuzaki Corporation. The last time Terry and I talked in person, we were sitting at a table at a chamber of commerce business after hours. I mentioned to him that I was hosting a radio program. Would he like to be a guest? And he really did not send up rocket flares and clash cymbals. <laughs> we had to uh, we had to negotiate a few times on that, and very happy to have him with us today. Terry Merck, welcome to Business Radio X. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be here, even though uh, I was kind of avoiding that. <laughs> the, the reluctant witness. Well, the first thing I would like to bring up is that as we talked at that Chamber of Commerce Business After Hours, you mentioned to me that in addition to your manufacturing career, you had 21 years as a wedding photographer. Tell us a little bit about that. That's correct. Uh, one of the things I always enjoyed in my teenage years was photographing. And uh, so I was always shooting pictures of landscape, people, you name it. So I was approached by a young lady uh, that was getting married and she could not afford a wedding photographer. She had uh, looked around, and she just didn't have the money to hire one. 
So she asked me if I would photograph it. And so I told her, you know, it's like I've never shot a wedding, and I'm a little skeptical about doing this. And she said, well, either you shoot it or I don't have any pictures for my wedding. So this was back in around 1983. So I went ahead and shot the wedding, and after shooting that wedding, people saw the photos, then it kind of took off from there. So I was approached, and I never, in 21 years, I never advertised, uh, so I stayed busy. I could shoot every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, if I wanted to. Uh, At times, I was doing uh, two weddings on a Saturday, and uh, but it got to a point where I had to narrow it down to just one on a Sunday. Well, Bo, I think Saturday. here's a great uh, message here. He said he didn't advertise. You know, great work is your best advertisement, isn't it? Well, that's right, word of mouth. So it sounds like that's what was happening. People right. were having a good experience and telling people about you. They were, and it's something I enjoyed, something I was passionate about, and I had – it was one of those things where I'd heard so many horror stories about some of the photographers stressing out the bride and groom during the wedding. It was like, why? This is one, supposed to be one of the most enjoyable times that they have. So I, I helped create an environment to where they enjoyed it and loved the Eliminated that stress. Yes, I hope you yes. didn't do this. My parents, the story goes... They went to get their pictures, and the lady forgot to put film in the camera. I have heard that happening before. Yeah. That never happened with me. <laughs> well, I think your your greatest claim to fame as a wedding photographer is that in 21 years, it never rained on the outdoor weddings. That is true. I actually, before and after you told me. That is true. I actually had uh, people that would call me, and they said, we heard you're the photographer that if I have outdoor wedding, you're the <laughs> one to get because you got some power somehow. It's kind of hard to guarantee. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get to your manufacturing career, because as I understand from a conversation we had a few minutes ago, this was not afterwards. This was during. You were weekending while you were getting your manufacturing career going. That is true. Um, I have been in manufacturing since I was 14 years old because my grandfather was a carpenter. So I was working with him doing manufacturing, building houses, of course. And then uh, went on to school, uh, got out, and uh, went straight into uh, manufacturing and textile industry. And then from that, uh, moved into uh, uh, automotive parts company that was uh, manufacturing automotive parts and was doing that up until um, I wound up in the company I'm with now. Well, tell us about American Yuzaki. Uh, American Yazaki is a, uh, our parent company is a Japanese company called Yazaki over in Japan. They have three plants. Uh, they produce plastic parts. Um, they uh, supply parts for the auto industry, also for the food industry, and uh, fuel tanks. And that's why they are here in the United States, because uh, one of their customers was Yamaha, and they requested that they come to the United States and produce fuel tanks for them, and they're located down in Noonan, Georgia. Uh, and the reason why it's uh, our fuel tanks, they meet the EPA requirements and the CARB requirements because of the state of California, because they don't allow the gasoline to evaporate through the plastic. So it's one of the good plastics that, uh, with all the negativity you hear about plastics this day and time, uh, it meets the requirements that California has. Well, 
Terry, being a, a Japanese company, do you notice a difference, or is there a difference between Japanese manufacturing and American manufacturing? There is. Okay. Um, I I had the experience, for example, in the textile industry, um, you had leaders and managers that it was one of those things where this is the way we've done it all this time. So we don't want to change it. We don't want to vary. Uh, you know, if you had ideas, it was like keep them to yourself. But uh, with the Japanese company, it was more of, you know, they wanted you to give that feedback and those ideas because it's always looking for ways to make it better and continuous improvement. That's that's the main thing is continuous improvement. But all that was taught to them by Demings, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was an American guy that taught them a long time ago that technique. And so, they ran with it. Yes, they did. No one would listen to him over here, but they did. So. Another part of your versatility, you play in a band? Uh, I, I did ever since I've been 16 years old. Uh, about two years ago, I kind of hung it up, but right now I'm trying to get back into it. So it's, it's a passion that I have. I love music. Um, started playing bass guitar. Well, I was playing trombone before I was playing bass guitar, but uh, uh, was been playing in bands since I was 16 years old. Well, having visited American Yuzaki, I'm aware of your use of robots. Talk a, a little bit about that for us. Yes, we have. We probably have more robots in our manufacturing plant than we do people, uh, and they're doing jobs that uh, a person, if they were doing, they would have probably problems with ergonomics, uh, repetitive motion, and there's some of the jobs that they do that a human couldn't do, such as holding the fuel tank under a laser and allowing the laser to cut all the flashing off of that fuel tank, which a human would not be able to so do. So they're that. not replacing people. No, they're not. So, And we're having trouble, as everyone is in this area, finding people. I have three openings right now that I'm trying to fill, and I've had those openings for a month and a half, and we're just looking for people to fill them. Isn't that amazing? The robots, they're a little more dependable, huh? They are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's next, Terry? So so we talked about, I think it's great that people know know what you're doing over there at American Yazaki. What is the next, what do you see the next step or things going in the future? For us, we are looking at getting into um, uh, containers for agricultural chemicals, things like this, that uh, would do the same thing that the fuel tanks do. It'd be just like having it in metal or glass, uh, keeping that chemical from seeping through the plastic, because we have a barrier layer. Those fuel tanks are multi-layered, and it has a barrier layer in it that keeps the mo- the molecules from that gasoline from escaping through it, just like it would metal or glass. And uh, so that's what we're looking at getting into. We're right now in the process of uh, putting our s- sixth line in place. Uh, we have a new Honda fuel tank that we're going to be producing. It's a Honda power equipment. All of our fuel tanks go on uh, pressure washers, generators, lawnmowers, things like that. Uh, uh, Yamaha goes on uh, four-wheelers and side-by-side vehicles. That's, and then we also do a monolayer, which doesn't have the barrier, but that's used for Rico down in Lawrenceville for um, their ink cartridge bottles. One of the things we find with every business leader is that they didn't get there by themselves. So who are some of the people that have inspired you, assisted you, been role models? Well, my grandfather, for one, in the beginning, he was, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it was always you get there on time, which meant you got there early. You didn't get there late. 
So, uh, you know, and it was like you had to be on the job no matter whether you were sick or not because the cows, if they came up, be fed or whatever, you had, they were waiting on you and you had to be there. And they didn't care about your health. That's right. So, and as, as I went through the years, uh, I had a teacher that was the biggest, he's my mentor. He's the biggest uh, influence that I ever had. That was Mercer Crook with the East Hall Band. And he always stressed about being the best you could possibly be. And that's one of the things that I've always tried to achieve in everything that I do. I didn't take second best. That's, um, that's why I did so well with my photography. I do so well with my music. And, you know, I, it drives me up the wall when I'm around people that tell me they can't do something because you can do anything you set your mind to doing. It doesn't matter. If you don't understand it or know it at the time, there's a way to understand it where you can accomplish anything you want to. You remind me of that book that became so popular several years ago, Good is the Enemy of Great. And the reason was because if you settle for good, you'll never be great. That's true. That's very true. Well, Terry, you kind of hit on it, but I'm going to ask you a little bit different question than I asked Brett. And you had some ideas in this last, last, last little bit you were talking about, but is there something over all your experience managing, working in, in manufacturing a principle, a key to success, or something you just say has really served me well or served business well, your choice? I would say uh, be involved mm-hmm. and helping people. Uh, that's one thing, my, uh, like I said about my grandfather, is always helping others. You know, it's like your employees that you have, help them. Help them to learn, help them to coach them, um, just like uh, Brett was talking about him coaching. Uh, you're always coaching people that, uh, or under you as uh, employee and helping them to be better than what they are. It's, it's just one of the things that um, I've always driven at. And uh, my son, you said uh, people that inspired me, even he, my son's inspired me. He's done things that um, has impressed me just from what he's learned from me. He's took it to a whole new level. And, uh, you know, it's just... I uh, just enjoy being around people that want to achieve great things. Right. You know, I, I love taking that experience and sharing it with others. Yes, I love it. Well, Terry, thanks so much for coming on North Georgia Business Radio and sharing with us your experience and yeah. and what's going on at American Yazaki. Well, thank you for having me, Brett, Brianna. Thanks so much for letting letting our community know what's going on at Progenics. Good stuff, exciting stuff. It's our pleasure. Yeah. Dr. Bill, it's been another fun one, some great guests, some great local businesses, and I think these two in particular, it was good to get the message out to let people know what's going on here. Yes, and they got the message out very well. Well, we'll see you next week, same time, same place, for more local businesses and leaders behind them on North Georgia Business Radio.